Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Ganesh Sitaraman, a professor of law at Vandermilt Law School, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and a longtime advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren. He served as her policy director and senior counsel. He's also the author of multiple books, including The Counterinsurgents Constitution, The Great Democracy, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution, and his latest book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It, which we'll be talking about today. Professor Sitarman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I I often like to start with the title of books because I think it says a lot about what, of course, you're talking about. And I want the first part of your title is, of course, why flying is miserable. And that there's an assumption built in there that flying is in fact miserable. I don't think that most Americans would disagree with that. But in thinking about the components of that misery, it seemed to me there are kind of four things going on here. Access, price, both total cost and transparency, the dependability of service, uh, and the service you get when you're you know, on the aircraft. Uh, is that more or less covered? Or are there things I'm missing? Or are those the basic components, would you say, of our misery with flying? I, I think those are the basic components. If, if we understand each of the terms that you use, you know, kind of capaciously, um, so access, I would say, is partly a question about geographic access. Where are there airports? Where do the airlines fly? How many airlines fly to those places? Is there competition uh, in those places? And that's, you know, competition is both an access question and a price question. Uh, it it kind of covers both of them. Um, if we think about dependability of the airlines, you know, it's not just for each of us as passengers in the perspective of, delays and cancellations and, and all of those things. But as a country, are we we're depending on this industry? And, you know, we've had a kind of boom bust cycle in the industry after 9-11, you have bailouts. Um, after COVID, we have a taxpayer support plan for the industry uh, that involves, you know, billions of dollars going to the industry. You know, so so there's a, a level of uh misery there. Uh, maybe the more uh, flying appropriate word is kind of turbulence in the industry also. Um, and so, so if, we're, if, if we're broad enough, I think it encompasses both things. It's the things about the industry itself that seem unhealthy, but also all the day-to-day -day things that anyone who's buying an airplane ticket or flying finds frustrating. And it seems to me when we talk about misery or how you know how good or how really how bad flying is, there's there's a comparative element built into that. And in thinking about that, to me, it seems like there are two common comparisons we might make. And that's first compared to how it was in the pre-deregulation period, and then compared to how it could be in the future. And so it makes sense to me to start with the past that pre-deregulation period, and, and I'm talking about from roughly 1938 until the 1970s, late 70s, when the Civil, Civil Aeronautics Board, or CAB, regulated both routes and fares. And, and that's a lot of regulation. And so I thought maybe you could 
help us understand what the justifications for such a high regulation model were at that point and throughout that period, really? Yeah, so so let me go back and and uh, start a step ahead of that first, and and then we'll get into the history, which is just to say, you know, I, I think you're right in in a comparison. We want to know can something be better, or how do we compare how good something is? Um, and to me, as somebody who works in policy, you know, one of the things that I observed in writing the book, and as I did the research for the book, is that you know all the things we find miserable that we were just talking about are a function of policy choices. Um, and as you mentioned, you mentioned deregulation, but this was the biggest, most important policy choice that has happened in the industry. It restructured the whole sector from how it had really been from early days uh, to how it is today. And it, and it unleashed dynamics that, you know, kind of went on uh, of their own volition and really transformed how the industry operates. And so I think policy choices are really important and they're never zero sum. I mean, you can make policy choices that go a long way. You can make policy choices that are half measures. You can make quarter measures. You can tweak things a little bit. So part of what I see as the way we think about this whole area is, you know, you can compare it to the past. You can compare it to an imagined future, um, but you can also make incremental progress too. And so we'll get to this later, but I, I think it's important to say we don't have to be... Um, you know, all or nothing in how we think about policy solutions. Yeah, that's a great point. And 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 so to go to go back to your to your question, you know, what was the justification for regulation? The, the way I talk about it in the book, and I think the important historical context is that for many many years, and by many years, I mean since like the 13th century, you know, since medieval times, um, people thought that some businesses were different than others. And the businesses that were special were ones that were kind of like infrastructure or utilities or platforms or networks. Um, and in, you know, in the middle day, middle ages and in the old days, they were things like wharfs and the town marketplace. And, you know, later on, uh, you, you'd get like grain elevators. Um, in the 19th century. These were things that were thought of as these are different kind of businesses. And with industrialization, people recognized that other businesses were in this category too. The railroad, the telegraph, the telephone, electricity, uh, pipelines um, for oil and gas. You know, the post office was considered one of these businesses. Um, banking was was in a different category like this. And And the idea was these are all things that are not only essential to many, many kinds of services and to society, commerce, communications, civic life, uh, economic growth. Um, but they were also places where they, there was a real tendency to either monopoly or oligopoly and where the actors owning the businesses had considerable power over all of the users. And there were a few choices. And so for these businesses, People thought, you know, we actually need to have a different regulatory system. And, you know, for standard economic reasons, which is when you have a monopoly or oligopoly, you're not going to have competition to discipline the behavior of the monopolist. And so you're going to see abuses of power. You're going to see higher prices. You're going to see worse quality of service. Um, you're going to see favoritism of them picking and choosing who they want to serve. And, and those are all bad things. And then when you put on top of that, that these are essential services that you're trying to provide for the public because they're necessary for economic growth, you know, there's a lot of reason to treat them differently as compared to, say, a business that's, you know, making coffee mugs or 
or, or manufacturing desk chairs, you know, for your office. Um, and, and that tradition, there was this sense of regulated capitalism in these infrastructure businesses. Um, that existed for, for, for a very, very long time. And it was what applied in the transportation industry across the board, really. And so when the airlines were, you know, when airlines became a new technology, um, people struggled with how to think about policy for them. And after a series of crises in the 1930s, realized, you know, we just need to have the kind of public utility model for airlines that we've used in these other transportation sectors, like railroads, uh, like trucking, like oil pipelines, like maritime shipping, um, all have their own tweaks and are a little bit different. But that was the that was the idea. So in 1938, the Civil Aeronautics Act established a system that was exactly what you said, uh, it created a regulatory body that was going to regulate routes, um, allocate them to the different airlines, decide who's flying where, uh, they would set the prices. Um, and they did this to create what, what I think of as a kind of stable, reliable system. The idea is we want airlines to exist and we want them to be flying all over the country. So we can't have them constantly going bankrupt. We also really don't want them to be subsidized all the time. In the early days, you know, from the Wright brothers onward, for the first few decades of the airlines, they were really subsidized quite heavily through the through airmail, through the post office. Um, so we wanted to move them off of the subsidies. And we also want to make sure there's some competition. You know, there were a number of airlines that were in the system then. Uh, but we want to make sure that, you know, they're all operating stably and and are going to, you know, be able to sustain themselves. And so there was a balance between those things. And that was the system we had from the 30s to the 70s. And that that system of what you call regulated capitalism, that wasn't the only choice at, at that point, right? Because other other countries have gone other ways with, say, just a, a strict government run uh, monopoly, a national airline, that sort of thing. So it really is, uh, it seemed to me, a uniquely American market oriented way to try to go about this. That's right. And, and that's and what's really striking and I think kind of amazing in the history is you know, the industry at the time even says, we need to go the American way, uh, not the way of Europe. And the way of Europe was nationalization, tons of government money going into these sectors, public enterprise. Uh, the American way is public utility. It's we're going to have private companies, but we're going to regulate them in the public interest. And and that was the American tradition of regulated capitalism that, that in a lot of ways we've lost. And, and in some ways, the book is, you know, uses airlines as a way to think about and recover this tradition that we've we've largely forgotten, but was, you know, kind of a core way that America thought about balancing the needs of the public and the benefits of capitalism. I noticed that throughout the book, there were two concepts that came up a bunch of times, and I think they're really important. So I was hoping to take a minute where you could expand on why they're so important. And those concepts are cross subsidies and cream skimming. And can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. So so um again, let me step back a little bit and and here I'll use the example of the post office before we get to to airlines. Um if you're trying to build a geographically broad system and you want service that's stable and reliable to lots of places, there's a real challenge you face. The challenge is some places are more expensive to serve than others. So if you're going to get you know, send a letter to Alaska, 
uh, from New York City, you know, it's a lot more expensive than sending a letter from New York to Washington, D.C. Um, you got two big cities in the first case. Alaska is a lot farther away. And if you're going to send it to rural Alaska, you know, even more difficult. Right. So really high expense. But it's also really low volume. There's not a lot of people in rural Alaska. And so you're not going to have, you know, airplanes or trucks or whatever that are going to be jam packed with mail. And so the price is going to be really expensive. And so what that means is if you want there to be mail service to Alaska in these rural places, you either are going to have extremely high prices, which means you won't get much service. And that'll create kind of a vicious cycle. The higher the prices, the less service there's going to be because people don't want to pay the higher prices or can't afford to. Um, or you have to do massive subsidies for that service. The other challenge that you face is if you, so, so, so the way you solve that problem is, is like I said, you could do subsidies, um, or you could create a whole system. And so, you know, the way the post office works is you're actually not allowed by law to set up your own competitor to the post office for regular mail service you have to use the post office. And the reason why is that's then the post office can charge the same amount for a stamp going for a letter going to Alaska or going to Washington, D.C. And what they do effectively is they're cross-subsidizing. And what that means is it costs them a little bit less to send it down the street to D.C. if you're sending a letter, you know, from one part of D.C. to the other. Um, and it costs a lot more to send it to Alaska, but they're balancing that out internally and they're just charging everyone the same rate. And, you know, this happens in a lot of places. We see this in electricity. Everyone pays the same kilowatt per hour rate, usually, from their electric provider, even though it's more expensive to serve some people than others because they might live farther away. And it was more expensive to put in the power lines to their house. Um, and this is how airlines worked in the early days. And this is why they set the routes and they set the rates. If you were an airplane, an airline, you would get some highly profitable, high volume routes. And you'd get some more expensive routes. And the prices were set to be reasonable and affordable so that people could fly to the more expensive places and they weren't priced out. Um, and on the back end, in their own books, the airline was balancing their needs of competition and also, you know, how they wanted to do service quality and, and so on. Um, and, and so that, that's the idea of cross subsidies. It's sort of internal to the enterprise in order to make the price the same, you, you rebalance what the costs are. Now, to go along with a system like that, instead of a system of sub regular subsidies, just government dumping money into the expensive places, you usually need a rule that's sometimes called entry restriction. And it's designed, as you mentioned, to prevent cream skimming. And here's what that means. If you don't prevent somebody from coming in to start their own post office, What'll happen is a private company will just do daily mail service within New York City or between New York City and Washington or between New York and Washington and Boston and within those big cities. And so basically, they'll take all the really high volume, really high profit. There's, it's really cheap to serve because they're all really close together. They'll take all of that stuff and they'll leave the public actor, the post office, with all the rural places that are super expensive and so on. And that practice is called cream skimming. You take off the cream, the really profitable places, but you don't serve any of the expensive places. And so the way these things work in tandem is you need to say, hey, we're going to regulate who gets to go where. We're going to set the prices. Um, and that's going to allow us to serve everybody. And that's been a common thing across a lot of these sectors because you have these high cost differentials. 
And the concern was always if you end up with a system where you say, let's go to a full market, what you'll see is the high volume places being served. You'll see the more expensive rural, smaller towns, smaller cities, lower volume places not getting service or getting really, really high priced service. Um, and that creates a kind of downward spiral for those places. Uh, and that's a real, a real downside. The other thing you might have happen is just public subsidies. And the downside there is they're really at the whim of policymakers, um, who often and, and, you know, have tried to cut subsidies for all kinds of things. Uh, they see them as wasteful or something like that. And so there's a real challenge to making sure you have service. And, and this was something that was really built into the United States. I mean, you know, we have a post office from the very founding of the country. Um, and part of the understanding was we want to stitch together this very large, vast country that we have by ensuring we have communication. And that was also true of these other sectors. We want electricity in rural places. We want access to transportation all throughout the country because we understand that that's really important for creating economic growth, for communication. Um, and for all the other benefits of living in a modern society. And so when we look back, I mean, this system was in place for roughly 40 years or so. Uh, how would you say, going back to those uh, four categories I talked about at the outset, access, price, dependability, service, how good of a job did this system do in, in, in meeting you know, reasonable criteria, reasonable levels in those areas? Well, I think it did pretty well. Um, Overall, we had a really stable, reliable service. It was dependable. It reached a lot of places. Uh, and the quality of service was very good and was actually increasing. People were constantly, the airlines were constantly trying to improve their quality service. By the time we get to the 70s, it's so competitive on quality of service. You've got things like piano bars in the airplane. You've got people serving steak in the airplane. I mean, it's a wild thing to think about today. On domestic, regular flights, you'd see that level of service quality. Um, you know, the usual thing people say as a downside to the system was, well, prices were really high and uh, and that after deregulation, prices went down. And we can we can talk more about this when we talk about deregulation. Um, but to give a short preview of it, it's true that prices did go down after deregulation, but they were also going down during the regulated period, too. And at about the same rate the whole way without a big discontinuity, if you're looking at average prices. And so, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that is, is you had prices going down that whole time. And so while it started as more and more of a luxury good um, that was very expensive, uh, it was coming down throughout the whole regulated period. Um, there were also new technologies that were making flying a lot safer, uh, like the shift from propeller planes to jets. Um, and you also had increases in, in regulatory actions on safety, uh, like the creation of the FAA in the late 50s. And, and those were really important features too, because you had a really unsafe system also in the you know 30s and 40s, the early days of flight, um, and certainly before that. And so by the time you get into a period where you can increase safety, that also increases consumer confidence and, and gets more people flying. Uh, and I think that really helped the industry in this period too. One thing we haven't talked about to this point is labor. And of course, there are a lot of folks who work in the airline industry. And how did this system work out for labor overall, would you say? Well, I think in general, it was pretty good. Um, when you compare it to, again, as, you, as, as we started, there's a real question of comparisons here. So when you compare it to what was happening in the 80s, which we'll come to, 
after deregulation, um, I think it was a pretty favorable period. That's not to say there weren't serious problems. You know, you can't go back and look at flying in that period and and not see how um, chauvinistically sexist, you know, the the treatment of flight attendants were. Uh, the advertising from that period to to modernize is uh, completely inappropriate. Um, and and I think there are, you know, so, so from a labor treatment there, there were other challenges and problems that were that were quite severe. But if you're thinking about, you know, stability wages, um, you know, when you go to the 80s, uh, as we'll discuss in a minute, um, the picture really changes from the the stable kind of system we had in the regulatory period. And so let's let's talk about that transition, because it seems like it was a pretty decent system. And yet, starting, I guess, really kind of in the early 70s or so, there's this increased push to deregulate the industry. What was that all about? Uh, Who led that? I know the Chicago School is part of that. But can you kind of give us an overview of how that came about? Yeah, I I think it was really a perfect storm of ideas and context. And so on the ideas side, there were a lot of deregulatory advocates who were proponents of markets. And and they said that basically the regulated system organized by the government was a cartel. And cartels are bad. Um, Market competition is good. And we need to have market market competition. Uh, They said, you know, airlines are like convenience stores or, or, or like making coffee mugs. They're not these special industries that need to be treated specially. And, you know, in some ways they had a great pitch. You know, imagine you could have hundreds of stable airlines with cheaper prices, with no real downsides. Um, all we need to do is let them fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and let them charge whatever they want. Markets, that's, that, that was their pitch. And, and this coincided with, you know, an economic crisis in the early 70s. Uh, you know, there were the oil shocks, there was high inflation, there was lower demand for flying. And the airlines themselves had also just bought whole fleets of wide-body jets, which were brand new um, in the 60s. And so they had these high costs for these jets that they went to the regulators and said, hey, we need to you know, deal with the fact that we just paid for all these jets. We're going to have to increase prices a little bit. And so you had a little bit higher prices in that period, too, even as demand is down um, because of the economy. And the combination of those two things really created the room for a big policy change. And I think what will be surprising to a lot of people is that this change was in part really pushed by people we consider liberal Democrats. You know, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, was one of the big proponents of airline deregulation. Um, His chief counsel, the kind of staff member working for him on this issue, was Stephen Breyer, uh, who, you know, later became famous and is most known for being a Supreme Court justice uh, for many years, just retired a few years ago. Um, so, you know, that was part of the push was this kind of bipartisan consensus between the pro-markets, anti-government regulation folks and liberals who thought this was a way to be pro-consumer, uh, in large part on the same kind of market theories that the conservatives were pushing. Um, and so in that context, uh, in 1978, Congress moved and uh, President Carter, another Democrat, signed the Airline Deregulation Act. 
And in, in terms of models, it seemed to me that there were a lot of folks who were pointing toward airlines that flew within two states in particular, Texas and California, and said, look at their prices are a lot lower, saying that, well, we can just do that nationwide. But as you talk about in the book, that's maybe not a great comparison, right? Yeah, it was really interesting. So at the time, the Civil Aeronautics Board was allowed to regulate any airline that was flying between states, interstate travel. Um, and the idea here was, you know, this is the federal government, so they're regulating national issues. And if you're crossing state lines, that's a national issue. But if you were just inside one state, maybe it's okay. And so they didn't regulate that. And um, the in Texas and California, the markets are big enough, and there's some big cities, that airlines were popping up just serving the intrastate market only within the, the state. And people looked at those models and said, see, look, it's not regulated there. Seems like it's working pretty well. So maybe we can just expand that everywhere. Um, what, what I think is so striking about that is, you know, if you take the case of Texas, uh, what was really going on was the, the airlines in Texas and Southwest at the time was one of these airlines. They were effectively cream skimming from the federal system. They basically were able to say, you know, we don't have to serve rural Alaska or all these other places. Why don't we just serve these high volume routes in Texas? We can undercut everyone on price and, because we're unregulated and we're not serving these other places. Um, and that'll be great. And, and there's actually lawsuits about this because the other carriers pointed this out and said, this isn't fair, uh, you know, and, and they should be regulated too as part of this system. Um, and so that that was what was going on. So people pointed to this, but but I'm not sure it's the best comparison for that reason. Uh, it really misunderstood what was going on, I think, in in those states. And so now we've had a little bit more than 40 years under this deregulated system, just like we had around 40 years on the highly regulated system. So going back again to those four uh, categories of access, price, dependability, and service. How does this new system, how is it stacked up or in comparison to the old system, would you say? Well, I think there's, I think one way to think about this is we really had a couple of different eras that happened after deregulation. Um, and the first one I would say is after deregulation, we did not end up in the dream world of the deregulators. What we got was actually in the 1980s, the Hunger Games. And it was basically a period of, cutthroat competition between the airlines, where the airlines were doing anything they could to get additional market share to stay alive. And so you had all these new airlines coming in, cream skimming routes, basically just serving, you know, New York to DC or Boston to New York, the Northeast Corridor was very popular. And you get airlines like People Express and New York Air offering no frills, only peanuts, uh, and, and the peanuts thing comes up because the idea was we're not going to give you a meal or anything. You only get peanuts. Um, only peanuts fares. Uh, so cheap prices on just these routes, not serving other places. They were coming in with no unions. Um, and the big airlines fought back. They attempted to, you know, renegotiate deals with their own unions for lower prices. They created what were called B-scales to say that any new worker coming to work for the airline wasn't going to get the benefits that the old ones got. Um, they would, you know, to fight the new entrants that came in, like New York Air, People Express, they would really price below what the other airlines were pricing. 
run them out of business and then jack up the prices afterwards. Um, and they could do that because they were huge airlines and had a lot more, had a lot more resources. Um, and so this was what was going on. And, and the result of all this kind of anti-competitive and, and aggressive cutthroat behavior was dozens of bankruptcies and mergers. You know, you've probably not flown New York Air or People Express in the last few years because they don't exist and they haven't existed since the mid eighties. Um, and in fact, by the end of the eighties, uh, things had really shaken out quite differently. And I think over time after that, you know, we could identify that we really moved into a period of effectively unregulated monopoly or oligopoly capitalism, uh, as opposed to regulated capitalism that we had before. You know, now you don't have that much choice. Uh, there's often bad service, bad prices, and, you know, it's not that comfortable. If you didn't coach, you're going to get a bad back by the end of your flight, uh, in some cases. And, you know, we actually have less competition today than we did in the 70s. The the big four airlines have more market share now than the top four airlines did in 1977 before deregulation. We have more concentration at airports. And you look at Detroit, for example, which in the 70s, you know, Delta was a big player there, had 21%, now has north of 70% of power at Detroit. So you get more concentration, meaning you have less competition. There's more geographic concentration. A lot of places have lost service or losing hubs. We've had 74 cities uh, lose service from one of the big airlines just since COVID. Um, and that's on top of all the daily miseries that we see now, smaller seats, more fees, complicated points programs, all, all kinds of things. And so I think when you think about the criteria that you noted across these areas, in a lot of places, it's really suffered. Um, and that was even true by the end of the 80s. So, you know, prices, we've had prices get reshaped. And like I said, people say prices just went down. Um, and they did, but they also went down beforehand. And they were going down at about the same rate. But the thing that happened is they really got reshaped. Some places had higher prices, and some places had lower prices. And that was largely because of competition and volume. Um, and so, you know, we've seen a different kind of system there. And, and the story is similar in some of these other areas. You know, all the cancellations and delayed, the bailouts, the bankruptcies, um, that kind of industry instability and dependability uh, has, has changed a lot. Um, and I think for the worse in, in recent decades, too. And, you know, one, one thing that occurred to me when I was reading the book and reading the arguments for deregulation and, you know, we'll have hundreds of airlines and all this. I actually read at one point in big red letters, what about airports, right? <laughs> I didn't understand why they didn't get this. The, the fact that it seems to me that's just kind of a natural choke point. And I didn't understand how proponents of deregulation could envision this massively competitive future when you only have a set number of gates and runaways and that. And it, can you talk about the, the role that at that airports and that kind of capacity issue played in this whole debate? It was it was honestly bizarre that there wasn't a kind of obvious and like serious engagement with this in some of the writings in the 70s. And, you know, there were a lot of other things that were bizarre, too. You know, they say things like there aren't economies of scale uh, in this industry, which is just a way of saying, you know, you get bigger benefits the bigger you are and it's easier, lower cost for you the bigger you are. Which is of course the case in airlines, but not not something they thought. They didn't really think there were barriers to entry. 
Um, it was called the theory of contestable markets, if you're interested in economic, you know, theory. And, and the idea was, well, anyone could just come in and that's what will discipline price. There'll be all this competition, uh, not accounting for the fact that, like, you actually can't just fly an airplane from one place to another. You got to have a place to land. And it's actually regulated because we also don't want planes crashing into each other. And so you have to have air traffic controllers and you have to have coordination. It's a whole system. Um, and that wasn't really part of the story. And, you know, airports are just a really important piece of how we think about the airline experience. You know, and, and as I mentioned, we've had more concentration at airports. So the big thing that happened, as I mentioned before, is, you know, you had regulated routes in the regulated period. And what that meant is the Civil Aeronautics Board said, you know, we're going to have airlines flying to all these different places. We want access to a lot of places and we want a lot of uh, nonstop service that will be beneficial to people. So you can fly from point A to point B, you know, nonstop. After deregulation, when airlines can fly wherever they want, what they realize is it's much more efficient for them and economical to move to a hub and spokes model, which basically means you fly a lot of your flights from all kinds of cities to one big airport and one big city, and then you make everyone connect and fly to wherever they're going. So if you're on Delta, you've probably connected through Atlanta or Detroit. If you're on American, you've gone through Dallas or You've gone through Charlotte, right? For all the for all the big airlines, you've got these big hubs that you connect through to get wherever you're going. And what that means is they don't have to fly as many flights because they're not flying point to point service between every city, between a whole bunch of cities. The only way to get from one to another is to connect through the big hub. Um, and this is great for some really small cities because if you're flying to Atlanta, you then have access to hundreds of flights, thousands maybe that go out of Atlanta on Delta to lots of different places. Um, but it's also inconvenient for a lot of people. Uh, and it creates these other problems, which is, you know, A, geographic inequality. You know, if you lose your hub as a city, I mean, St. Louis used to have a big hub. Cincinnati had a big hub. If you lose your, if you lose your status as a hub, you lose a lot of economic activity. You know, who wants to start a Fortune 500 company in a city that doesn't have a lot of airline service or doesn't have any airline service? You're, you're just not going to do it. Who wants to have a conference or a convention for their industry? in a city where it's hard for people from all over the country to fly there. Uh, and what about tourism? You know, how are you going to get tourists to come to your city if you don't have air service? And so there's a real downside to losing air service in a lot of these places and the consolidation that we've seen into what are called fortress hubs, these kind of 70, 80 percent market share of one airline. The other thing that this does is it's really bad for dependability. So, you know, you get a big winter storm or high winds or something like that in one of these hub airport cities, and it might shut the airport down for a day uh, or part of a day. And what that means is it cascades throughout the entire country because that airline is really dependent on that airport. Um, and so you have a kind of fragility in the network when you're really dependent on a small number of nodes, airports, and and those airports face crises. And, and, you know, we see increasing big storms and weather events. Uh, and, and that's a real problem, too. So let's move now from the kind of regulated past, the deregulated present into some potential futures, because, of course, the last part of your book is how we can fix the miserableness of air travel. And uh, you start off that section with three foundational principles. No more flyover country, no bailouts or bankruptcies, and fair and transparent pricing. 
And can you talk about why you feel like these are the really key things we need to focus on to improve that kind of overall experience of air travel? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the first one, no more flyover country, is basically the idea that we should have air service to a lot of places in our country, including small cities, medium-sized cities, rural places, all kinds of regions, because it's an important transportation infrastructure. And we want places across our country to have access to tourism and commerce and, and all the things that you get from having easy transportation. Um, and I think that's a that's a value judgment. You know, some people might disagree with that, but I think we have talented people who live all across the country and we should facilitate connection to the rest of the country and the world and to commerce and to economic growth and, and all of those things. So that's the first principle. Um, the second one, no bailouts, no bankruptcies, is that I think we want an airline industry. I at least want an airline industry that is stable, that's profitable, that's doing well, um, and not in the way that is a kind of booms bust cycle or heads I win, tails you lose kind of system, which is you know basically what we have where in the flush years, the good years, the airlines are making money hand over fist. The CEOs are doing great. The shareholders are doing great. You know, before COVID, we even had a CEO say they didn't think they were going to lose money ever again. Uh, but then there's a big demand shock. It happens. And now you have taxpayers having to come in and support them in the bad years. Um, that's not a fair system. We should have a system where as much as possible, you know, we don't need to bail out or support airlines in the bad years, but they're actually able to operate stably in the good years and in the bad years, because again, they're an essential service that we really need to have as a country. So that's the second principle. And then the third one is fair and transparent prices. And, you know, that's for all of us. Um, and, and, and it's a real thing where I think we've seen this system just get so much more complicated and difficult, harder to navigate. There's so many opportunities for exploitation with additional fees and, you know, uh, difficulties around um, around that, that I think we need to have a simpler system for, for consumers here. Um, and I think that'll be a system that's much fairer. And, and I think if we focus on these three things and there's ways to, to achieve these things that, that require thinking about different structures, and, and we could talk about some of those too. Um, I think it'll solve a lot of the other miseries in our system as well. And a lot of the other problems in our system too. On that that last element, fair and transparent pricing, I, I can hear some libertarianish folks saying, "Well, you know what? This is the, the model that we have is just reflecting consumer preferences. If people wanted easy pricing, if people wanted non crummy seats, well, they could pay more for those things, but they're choosing not to, and so therefore the the market's working just fine. It's just consumers are just stating their preferences, and the airlines are giving them what they want at least when it comes to the pricing and service and Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's sort of a weird way to think about the system, which is that you know what consumers want is bad service, complicated pricing, difficult websites to navigate. Uh, we're really excited. I mean, I've literally never heard anyone in my entire life say, I am thrilled to pay extra to check my bag. I am. It's so amazing that I have to pay to pick which seat that I want to sit in. Uh, I love the idea that because I bought the ticket on Wednesday and you bought it on Tuesday, that you paid 50 percent 
you know, uh, more than me or less than me, <laughs> yeah. or I paid 30 bucks more than you. Nobody is saying that. Like, it's a weird world to think that people say that. No one says that. It's the opposite. Everyone hates all those things. We don't like dynamic pricing. We don't like all the extra fees. We don't like the system that we have. And the reason we don't like it, but still live with it, is because it's not really a competitive system. It's not like buying coffee mugs or going to a restaurant. If you don't like the food at the restaurant, restaurants go under and they don't exist anymore. And like a new restaurant will come up in that place that maybe will have better food, maybe will have worse food, you don't know. But that doesn't happen with airlines because it's not really a competitive system. Um, and, and I think that's a key thing. Some businesses are different than others. What are you going to do? Not fly to that city where they're the only airline going at the time that you need to get there, or maybe the only airline altogether, you don't really have a choice in a lot of places. I think that's the real the, the real challenge for this. And so I, I think it's a weird way to think that we actually like all these things. Like, I, I don't know, I've never heard anyone say that they, they enjoy any of those specific uh, things. They're, they're actually the things everyone complains about, to yeah. my mind. So when you talk about specific paths forward, one thing you suggest, and we talked about at the very open, is what a number of other countries have done, just go with a single national airline. And what do you think about the benefits and big drawbacks with that sort of approach in the American context? Yeah, so one of the points I make in the book is that what we've lost in forgetting the American tradition of regulated capitalism. What we've lost in forgetting this sense that some businesses are different from others and utility businesses have tendencies to monopoly or oligopoly is, is thinking seriously about various ways to structure these industries. And, and if you were thinking about um, airlines and you take seriously the economies of scale, the network effects, um, all of the things that make airlines efficient, the move to hub and spokes, you know, what you would actually end up with if you just took those principles really seriously is you'd say, well, the most efficient thing is just have one airline. And you could design that in a couple of ways. You could say it should be a nationalized public carrier, right? Because that would be regulated. If you had a, you could also say we want it to be a private sector entity, but we're going to regulate it like a public utility. You know, in a lot of places, your electric company is a you know, private public utility, uh, kind of a mix system, not like the post office, which is purely public. Um, so those are both models of a kind of single provider. And that would take seriously some of these economic dynamics in the industry. It also comes with some downsides, potentially. And, and you know, it's not obvious. Will we get worse service over time because there's no competition at all? And there's nothing to make that monopoly interested in improving its quality in being on the forefront? Will it get a little stagnant? Sometimes in our history, we've had entities like that that have been highly innovative. Sometimes we haven't. And so, you know, I think that's also true in other countries. Sometimes they work well, sometimes they don't. So we don't know, but there's real trade-offs potentially in either a kind of nationalized system or a private monopoly that's regulated like a utility system. But, but then there's another option that you suggest, and you, used to, you call it a public option. Now, when I think about that, I, being kind of a healthcare geek, I automatically think about the early days of the Obamacare proposals, and that went down in the flames. But can you talk about what a public option would be in regards to airlines and how that might work and potential you know, benefits and drawbacks for that sort of thing? Yeah, so this is another one. Taking into account the scale idea, maybe you keep your private airlines, but you also have a public one to come in 
that would offer, you know, regulated prices, uh, maybe a lower quality of service, perhaps um, a standard quality of service. And other airlines might want to offer more than that. Um, and and the idea here, like you said, it's it's kind of taken from healthcare, but actually we have public options everywhere. You know, there's public schools and private schools. Uh, there's public libraries and some universities are private universities and they have private libraries. Um, you might have a private library in your house. There's public swimming pools and private ones and public golf courses and private ones. And we've got lots of these all over our society. And actually people really like public options. People love their public library. Uh, and so the idea here is, you know, we could think about this in the airline context. And in fact, Australia had a system that was called the two airline policy and they had a public and a private airline before their deregulation uh, process happened many decades ago. Um, and, and so that would be the idea is you get some competition. So if the problem with a kind of nationalized or mo monopoly carrier approach is you'd have some competition, you had a duopoly, you'd have two airlines, one public, one private, and they would both fly everywhere. They would both compete. Um, but the idea is that the public one would make sure that the private folks are keeping their prices down. And the private one would make sure the public folks are increasing their quality of service and are innovating. And, and that would allow for some amount of, you know, benefits that we get from competition, but while tilt still really putting a thumb on the scale for efficiency of a single system. What about an option that occurred to me is, well, the old system seemed to be working reasonably well. Could we just restore, I mean, restore something like that, probably with tweaks and adjustments and so forth. And I guess, would that be possible? And would it be a good idea? So that's another option. You know, I, I don't um, spend a lot of time on, on it in the book because we spent a lot of time talking about how it actually worked. And I think that's that's certainly a possibility that, that people could want to go back to re-regulation under the old system. Um, this system also had some drawbacks too. I think probably the the biggest one that we, that I observed uh, is in trying to calculate prices, they had a hard time doing it at the time. And it took years in some cases to do the kind of investigations they needed. It's possible now that with technology, it would actually be a lot easier to do that in that kind of system. Um, it's also possible that it, it would be hard to go back to that kind of system just as a practical matter, given where we are. I mean, obviously I think it would be hard to imagine going to a nationalized system or a, a public option airline also, those would be hard too. But, you know, the idea in the book was to explore some variety of kind of bolder options that are more structural in nature um, before getting into some of the smaller, uh, more manageable, more doable ideas. I guess something that's puzzling, maybe not puzzling to me, but somewhat puzzling to me is, Almost everyone who flies seems to agree that flying is miserable for a variety of reasons, that our system stinks. This is a bipartisan thing. It affects a lot of people who have a lot of political pull. And while we've seen some little things like passengers' bills of rights and things like that, I don't get a sense that there's any big push for anything that would really fundamentally improve the, the nature, quality, stability of our service. And I'm wondering why you think that is. So I think there's really been two. Re I think there's two reasons. One is for many decades, you know, the the general view, I mean, almost a conventional wisdom, um, uh, was just deregulation was great, everything is great, and this is the only way it could ever be. And I think in a lot of areas, people are now reassessing 
how we changed our economy starting in the 70s and 80s and noticing, hey, we now have a lot of bank crises and we really are quite dependent on Wall Street banks for a lot. That wasn't true before and seems like a problem. You know, uh, worker power has changed a lot. Um, you know, antitrust wasn't a thing we really did much in the last few decades and maybe we need to do some more of that. You know, so there's been a lot of places where we've been reassessing uh, where we are in terms of economic policy. And I think this is one of those areas that that is ripe for some reassessment. And so I think some of it's been a kind of failure of imagination in the last few decades. Um, the second thing is one of the real challenges here, which is common in a lot of areas of policy, is where we passengers are a diffuse group of people. You know, it's like a lot of people who are busy doing other things in our lives and you know, working on a lot of stuff, our daily life, going to kids' soccer practices, you know, and to really organize and advocate. Um, I don't know a lot of individual airline passengers who have like lobbyists in Washington um, that, that that work for them on this issue. Uh, but if you're the airlines, you do, right? And so there's a real asymmetry here in who has power in DC, where interest groups that have a lot of interest in in advocating and lobbying. Uh, I think have more control over the system than all of us, even though a lot of people would be upset about this. And a lot of people would really cheer if we could actually make the system better. But going to the airlines, if I recall correctly, the air, the airlines actually were not all that crazy about the idea of deregulation. And I can envision uh, a way in which actually a more regulated environment, if we move back to that would actually be better for the airlines. And so, I mean, couldn't this be structured in a way that would appeal to those interests that do have lobbyists in Washington? Uh, you know, I, I would wish and hope that could be the case, but I am not optimistic about that. It, it is one of the really interesting things that I found in doing the book that in the period before deregulation happened, the, the airlines were against it. They said, you know, one of the leading executives at American, who was, who was later was kind of legendary head of American, said, you're going to wreck this industry if you deregulate. And um, and thought that the right way to do it was the public utility model. He then, you know, was one of the, the, the victors in the Hunger Games of the 80s and was a very successful competitor in that period, did a lot of uh, innovative and cutthroat kinds of uh, competition measures in that, in that era. But by 20 years later in the 2000s was, again, as a, as a person retired from the industry, saying we need to actually think of this as a public utility. That's how this industry should work. Um, but, you know, it was sort of a don't hate the player, hate the game. Right. He played under the rules that that he was given. Um, and, and and I think what's striking is that the people in the industry back then understood this. By the time we get to today. Um, you know, I think people probably there's a maybe a, a hefty status quo bias where I suspect they wouldn't want to move into that system. But I, I do think there would be a lot of benefits and, and it would be one, as I said, no bailouts, no bankruptcies. That's actually uh, a policy that says we want a successful industry. Um, it may be more boring than it is now, but boring is good. Yeah. For air travel for sure is. I, part of it, I wonder sometimes with not just air travel, but various other aspects of the economy where the problem is maybe one of framing or messaging in that it seems to me that it's always framed as a 
more or less regulation. But I can see in terms of airlines and other sectors where maybe a way to frame it is how do we create the conditions for real competition, which we don't really have in the airline industry. And if it's framed in terms of competition as opposed to regulation, it seems to me that a lot of folks, especially on the political right, might be more receptive to it. And I wanted to get your take on that. I think the I think probably the lowest hanging, easiest things that we could do that would make a structural difference, not playing whack-a-mole where we're trying to solve one little problem here and one little problem there, but that would make a structural difference are competition measures, you know, making airports more competitive. Um, that would be a positive thing, deconcentrating our airports. Um, I, I think that could be very, very helpful. Um, my only caution on it as a mental model for how we think about this industry is this is not restaurants, convenience stores, coffee mugs. This is a different kind of sector where we shouldn't expect that there's going to be real competition in the sense of hundreds of players operating competitively like you would think about in a kind of econ 101 course. Um, this is going to be an oligopoly and we could have more competition than we have now. And that would be, that would be beneficial in a bunch of ways, but, uh, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking this is a highly competitive industry. Yeah, that's a good point. So in the end, do you think, what's your optimism level here? Do you see at any point in the next, I don't know, five to 10 years that we're going to do anything but nibble away at the edges? Or is that going to take a sort of a sea change in political alignments and uh, makeup of Congress and that sort of thing? Well, I think I'm, I'm uh, optimistic in a um, depressing way. And let me say <laughs> okay. what I mean by that, which is, I think where we are is we have a system that is going to have another crisis. That's the depressing part. Um, it's going to be, you know, the next COVID, the next big demand shock. I mean, it happened with the Gulf War. It happened with 9-11. It happened with COVID. You know, where the airlines are going to say, oh, my gosh, we're all going to go bankrupt. We need a bailout or we need a taxpayer support program or we need something to be successful. And in that moment, I think there will be an opportunity where if people have thought more about this, if there's bigger picture ideas on the table, like the ones I outline in the book, if there's if there's been a conversation about the deep problems and there are some off the shelf ideas for what we can do in that moment, people might say, you know, sure, we'll rescue you, but not without a catch. And this time we're going to this time we're not just going to give you the money. We're going to actually say we want the airline industry to work a little differently. And and to me, that's the part that makes me optimistic. I think we might see some smaller, medium changes here or there. But I think when there's the next crisis, you know, I, I think people will say enough is enough. It's time to time to actually fix this problem for real. We can't just keep going from one crisis to the next. All right. Well, on that, at least somewhat optimistic note, we'll close. Ganesh Tarman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. 
And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling, knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.